We have just heard Lines in Sand, a composition that Douglas Quinn himself calls a sound memory. What can you tell us about the sound memory, Douglas, and um, why is it important for you that the audience hears it? Hello, everyone. Great to be back with you today for this episode. And so picking up on threads from what we were discussing previously, I had the sort of mixed privilege blessing and curse of growing up as the son of a diplomat. So my father was an American diplomat, and his first posting was to Algeria, the consulate in Algiers, in the late 1950s, early 1960s, when I started school. And this was a time of tremendous upheaval as the Algerians were in the closing chapter of their revolution against the colonial French government. So even though I enjoyed a position of privilege as a a diplomatic dependent, it was also a pretty horrific and mixed time. And so my memories of Algiers, specifically where I started school and uh, was living at the time, were were days that were filled with with beauty. Um, You know, I can remember in my mind's eye the smell and the view of the orange grove across the street from our house and the intense sunlight over the Atlas Mountains in the distance or going to the top of the road where we lived and looking down on the city of Algiers and the souk or the marketplace, but punctuated by scenes of horrific violence. So it was very much a mixed um, experience. And I think some of my early sound memories were the sounds of Kabilia or Berber women ululating and hearing that sound echo through the valley to the south of our house and knowing that what was to follow would be an attack on the city. So you would hear the low thudding sound of artillery and larger you know, types of arms and then almost like fireworks of small arms fire. And our our neighborhood was predominantly French. So, you know, you'd wake up in the morning and half the neighborhood had been evacuated or people had been killed, gone. But again, it was this juxtaposition of the beauty and the horrific. And so that contrast, I think, has forever left an impression on me. So the piece we're just listening to tries to sort of bring an expression to that through the memory of many, many years having gone by. But I think in terms of informing a way in the world and that listening, I think it was informed early on by learning the language. You know, I went to French schools when I was young uh, for mostly almost the first 10 years of my life, first in Algeria, but then I continued at a French international school in Stockholm, Sweden, and then moved to Quebec, Canada, where I began to, I spoke English at home, but I didn't know how to read or write until I was about 10. And so I was always a little bit behind when it came to English. And to this day, if it weren't for spell check, I'd be doomed. So um, so the, the, the French experience growing up, even though it was a sort of a colonial experience or a, through a bit of an abstraction, left a profound um, impact on me. And so, and with it comes an affinity for French people, French culture that that stuck in spite of uh, the early, you know, life in Algiers. So that is, that that piece, in the ways, is, is trying to kind of put into a shape these impressionistic memories of a childhood that, um, again, was very very mixed, with, you know, of, of of privilege and terror. <laughs> mm-hmm. So is this? 
are your sound memories because because there are more this is just one instance of of what you have are they would you say okay so first of all would you say are, are they musical compositions yeah so i think for, for me they exist in a continuum I, i think part of the way i learned to listen was just out of a need to fit in you know when when you're little and i was a very shy child um you know i'm i'm somewhat introverted now but i'm not shy at all um but introversion is really do you get energy from being around people or do you find being around people sort of exhausting and i fall in the latter category whereas extroverted people they get energy from being around people so let me just bracket that as a kid i was not only introverted but i was also very shy um but in a situation where you knew you have to learn the language as quickly as possible to fit in you know i think my sister and i have two brothers and a sister my sister's closer in age to me and we've talked about this that you know you move a lot you're always an outsider you never quite belong yes we were americans but we didn't live in america we didn't really know that much about america we represented a country that was alien to us so trying to fit in involved listening very carefully and learning the language as quickly as possible so when i was young french was reinforced because that's where i started school and the french primary education was actually very very powerful and left a lasting impact on me to this day as to most of my educational experiences but i also spoke arabic on the streets the arabic is gone because it wasn't really enforced and like anything else like you know athletics if you don't use it you lose it so but french stuck with me and i think it was because of the schooling so i think that that connection to 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 both listening and identity really was uh, by force of circumstance you have to find a way to fit in and connecting with people through language tunes in not only a sensitivity to language but for me a sensitivity to the soundscape and ultimately to music and the path that i've chosen in life Mm. So do you have any other of those sound memories that we can listen to? Um I think in the last uh last episode I talked about the importance of one of my teachers from high school uh the German Bex Richter taking me out on sound walks even though they weren't called that then but just sort of bird watching and natural history um experiences there. So there's um you know little we can duck back into the highlands for just a moment a little snippet of that because it does have an emotional resonance and i think is a nice uh segue into uh, talking about my my growth and development so we'll just have a little quick listen uh revisit from a dawn chorus on what's called the black isle uh in cromarty in the scottish highlands Okay. Thank you very much for sharing that with us and that was from Scotland, right? 
Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So just to kind of go over a few places in which you you grew up, uh, you know, and, and please, you know, make the list complete if I miss uh, anything, but uh, Algeria, Sweden, the French part of Canada, Quebec, uh, Scotland, well, USA later in your life. Is that it? Or anywhere else? Uh, Iceland. Iceland. Iceland mm, as well, mm. yeah. So there's a theme here, <laughs> apart from North Africa, which is my father's first assignment, um, there was more concentration on northern places. So I think that's what kind of resonates in me seeking out uh, places like Antarctica and the Arctic and Greenland, is that this is what home looks like and feels like. Mm, interesting. So anyway, uh, you know, of course... You moving around all the time meant that you had to go to school to all those in all these different places, which in its own accord means that you had probably more teachers than many of us listening to this episode, you know? So a lot of the our audience might think, oh, poor him, you know, he had to go <laughs> to go through all those ordeals with all those new teachers and, you know, having many and many of those. Was it a curse or a blessing to have all those uh, teachers from those different locations for you? Well, I think, you know, the moving is one thing. And I, I think as a, as a shy and fairly introverted child, it was very difficult um, always being the new kid, always standing out because you were different and being bullied. And, and so that was, that was the hard part. And adapting to new education systems was always tricky. But I have to say, in the long run, the the impact of how I grew up, I mean, it's all that I know, so of course this is true. If that's all you know, that is what is normal to you. So for me, I think the the exposure to uh, different education systems and to different teachers, some brilliant, absolutely brilliant teachers, and some absolutely dreadful teachers, I think there's there's a common, I've learned as much from the dreadful teachers as I did from the brilliant teachers that I had. So it always, they exist in a continuum. I will emulate that teacher because she or he was just fabulous. I will avoid doing that kind of behavior as a teacher because that was one of the worst experiences I had. So I'd say I had, again, the privilege through my upbringing as a diplomatic dependent access to the best education. And for my parents, who were sort of children or grandchildren of recent immigrants to the United States, mostly from Northern Europe, some from Southern Europe, my mother was sort of half Sicilian, half English, and my father was a mix of Irish, German, and Norwegian. So it's classic American the big immigrant swells that came over in the late 19th century, early 20th century. But I knew my great-grandmother. She died in her mid-90s, and she was born in Sicily. So I had a very strong connection. You know, she died when I was in my 20s. So I mention that because in the U.S., and for particularly for that wave of immigrants and their children and grandchildren, the way to make it in America was through education. It was absolutely viewed as an indispensable aspect of adaptation, assimilation, and success. So for my parents, this was paramount for them, that their children receive a good education. And I'm grateful for it because I feel I benefited from a French primary education, which was very rigorous in terms of learning how to study, how to memorize, sort of wrote um, things very, very crucial. 
and learning about the people of France and French culture. And that's informed a lifetime. I came back to the U.S. for a stretch uh, in the late 1960s, which is a pretty intense time, the height of the Vietnam War. And then I went to high school uh, from 14 to 18 in Scotland at a private school where uh, the Duke of Edinburgh Award was created, the Outward Bound Program in the United States and around the world was created. So the emphasis on um, you know, outdoorsmanship, but also self-reliance was a premium. So it was pretty, pretty special. And again, wonderful teachers and some not so wonderful teachers in each situation. But it prepared me for then tertiary education or university education in the United States, which to me is, you know, among the best in the world. So talk about privilege. I mean, my gosh, from French primary to British secondary to American higher education, I've really had an amazing life in education. And to be honest, that's what stimulated me to want to get into teaching. You know, you have to figure out a way to make it work as an artist. And yes, I did for a while work as a sound designer, music composer. But what I missed in doing that was the teaching aspect, which is why I went back and how we met is that I had come back after working for 15 years. And the fact that I'm here with you now is to me part of the fabric of what makes teaching so rewarding. What better thing than to see your success where you are in Vilnius now from having been a student with this international experience shaping others. You can never pay back the people who formed you, but you can pass it forward. So to me, it always exists in a continuum. You never stop having mentors and you always welcome having students because it's this give and take and this give and take that shapes your entire life. Mm. Yeah, that's so. That's that's an inter- that's a very beautiful uh, way to put it. You know, kind of repaying your teachers for through your students. You know, and I think that's uh, very much a reality to many mentors and teachers with whom I did interviews and about whom I did my documentary. So. But of course, once you start teaching, and I'm talking about myself as much as about you now, is uh, at first, you know, at the very beginning, you think that your students came to your classes to learn the craft, you know, just to learn how to position microphones, to learn how to, I don't know, record the best possible sound, how to use equalizer, how to use, you know, filters and all that. Uh, and you really focused on that, as, as you know, at least as me as a beginning teacher, I was very focused on that. And then it caused some, a certain degree of frustration in me because I realized that the students didn't really appreciate all those crafty things that I was trying to teach them. And then, you know, but then I was like, well, maybe it's not entirely their problem. You know, maybe I should kind of look into into what I'm doing. And then I realized that, you know, most of the students do not come for the craft, you know, to universities or to colleges or to schools, you know. And then that changed my entire perspective of how I teach. I mean, I still teach the craft because this is, you know, ultimately what they will need. uh, But it's not all they will need, you know, out there in the world. So what's your approach to that? What are you really trying to teach your students, you know? Yeah, I think you hit it on the head. I said this is really the core of why you choose a life in education. Yeah, the information is important. Yeah, you know, you need to learn, particularly in what we do, how to make the stuff or, you know, how to navigate, um, you know, the technical aspects of making a film or whatever it is. 
But I, I started out teaching art. And so I taught drawing and I taught art history. And one of the people who was singularly influential in my life is a man named Robert Katz. And Bob, I met him in my second year of university, and this would have been in 1977. And I just emailed him the other day. We've been in regular contact for more than 40 years. And so he was a mentor to me, but he also was one of those gifted teachers who allowed me to grow. And we became friends, became colleagues. We've collaborated on many, many projects. And so he was the one who said to me early on, you know, you've got to find a way to, to have a fulfilling life where you bring your passions in alignment with one another. And I always paid attention to that. And he said, the thing about teaching is that you're doing it, but you're also sharing, you know, as an artist, the work that you do with your students, because what they're going to get out of you is how have you made your way in the world? So it comes back to what your comment was, is that, yes, I could teach drawing. Yes, I could teach art history or, you know, in this later phase of my life, media production. And it's, it's crucial that you have the skills there. But what students really want to know is how have you become the person you've become? And so when I first started teaching, I never talked about myself. It was all about, here's how you do this, how you do this. And it just seemed to me to be sort of irrelevant. And then, you know, like a, a light bulb flickering to life, I, I kind of really thought about what Bob Katz had told me. And what I learned from him was truly learning at his side as he was would do these artistic installations and bring me along as uh, an assistant. Or he got me a position teaching on the Crow Indian Reservation for a summer. And just opening these doors for me and watching me grow. And so I realized, no, no, that's what education is about. It's about a conversation. It's about shining a light forward for those who will go on after you. And if you think of yourself that way, again, as a sort of steward with a sense of responsibility to both inspiring, but opening your life up and being sort of both emotionally available, as well as the intellectual stuff and the craft, that, to me, is the hallmark of a really good teacher, is that accessibility and those rich conversations like we're having now about how have you made a life? How have you come to be the person you, you are? And for me, it relates very directly to the power of teachers in my life. Mm. So I'm going to read an excerpt from your teaching statement, and then we're going to talk about that a little bit. So here it goes. And when I say I, I mean you, because I'm reading, you know, you, you wrote, <laughs> okay. you wrote in, in the first person, right? Okay, so I encourage lit articulation and literacy. Those involved in public communications and the media need to talk and write about their work and to reflect critically on its function and purpose. I expect my students to be socially engaged and to question the relevance of their work in a broader context. End of quote. So when you read this quote or when you listen to this quote, you wouldn't think immediately of a, 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 I don't know, media production professor or a sound design professor, right? And in fact, a lot of the uh, artists still, I mean, especially in this part of the world where I'm at now, because of all the political history, kind of shy away from being political, you know, or from being what you say socially engaged and questioning the relevance of their work. Uh, why do you think it's important? 
I think, well, you know, we come back to Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living. You know, I think it really comes down to one of the master teachers of all time. And so I, I do think that part of what art is about is not just contemplating your own navel, but cultivating an awareness that then you turn outwardly through your art to reach other people. It's a social activity. And I think it's it's important that you strike the balance between what you need creatively, the solitude that I need in field recording, or that a painter needs, or that a writer needs, but that you turn it around, that you eventually come back to a public, however big or small you aspire to, it doesn't really matter. Not everyone is going to have, you know, the fame, the fortune of a rock star, nor does it really matter. But I do think what does matter is that you're true to yourself, that you reflect critically on what you're doing and what meaning it has to your life, but ultimately, since arts and media are about communication, what you bring to the society as a whole and to the lives you touch through what you're doing, whether it's art or whether it's teaching, really anything that, you, that anybody does, you know, if you're an investment banker or if you're a nurse, whatever you choose, that, that you have some sense of awareness of your your place in society and the potential for impact that you have. Again, however great or small that may be. Thank you. Well, you know, all I can say, it's been a joy to have you as a teacher, and it's been a bigger, even a bigger joy to share you with my students. So thank you very much for that. And uh, in the next episode, we're going to talk about one of the subjects you taught me, and uh, one of the subjects that is uh, kind of overlooked by most of the, you know, contemporary uh, students of media, and that is radio and radio production. So is radio dead or is it on the verge of extinction as some of the species that you've been recording? Tune in next week to find out.